Morning, guys. Thank you so much for joining me, and welcome back to Those Murder Girls podcast. Let's get started. Raymond Harrington could not believe what he was seeing in the pre-dawn hours of July 13, 2011. The scene next door to his home just could not be processed. It felt impossible for Raymond to do anything except scream and yell for help as he watched Lisa and Dan Harrington's home at 118 Turnpike burn to the ground. Lisa and Dan had to be inside along with their sons Josh and Matthew, Matthew's girlfriend of about a year, and their small baby. The once beautiful home was engulfed in flames. Raymond ran around it, but there was just absolutely nothing he could do to put out the flames or saved his loved ones inside. Dan was Raymond's brother, making Lisa his sister-in-law and the boys his nephews. As word got around about the Turnpike Road home being leveled that morning, everyone's first thought was Matthew, the troubled son of Lisa from a previous marriage. Everyone knew of his criminal history, the challenges that he faced living with mental illness, and his checkered past. A felony arson charge was filed in Matthew's name for the suspicious fire, and a warrant for his arrest was issued, but he was nowhere to be found. Authorities did, though, suspect that he may have a connection to the car that was missing from the home that morning, even though it was not registered to Matthew. Matthew was the only person of interest related to the fire and was believed to be armed and extremely dangerous. An Amber Alert was issued soon after as they had many reasons to believe that Matthew was on the run with his girlfriend Loretta and their infant son as his hostages. Matthew had been living at the home on Turnpike Road with his mom, stepdad, and stepbrother for quite some time and their living situation hadn't been pleasant for a while. That wasn't a secret to close friends and family of Matthew, who they knew had overstayed his welcome a few times over. Tensions were high in the home between everyone, but especially between Matthew and his mother, Lisa. There often comes times in everyone's lives where change needs to happen, and this had been the case. But Lisa could not get Matthew to move out and onto a home that he can call his own with his family, no matter how bad things got. Matthew and Josh, Josh was Dan's son from a previous marriage, had an okay relationship. The two had known each other for years, and although Matthew could be a very difficult person to not only love, but to just be around sometimes, Josh was always there for him. Some think that he was there even when he shouldn't have been, as if Matthew was hard to love and didn't deserve Josh's love. But that was Josh, a loving, kind, sympathetic guy who knew the value of family. And I just want to make a note right here because there isn't a lot to go on in this case about the roots of this family. This is just how Josh came across, and it's my best assumption as to the kind person he was based on family members and friends, interviews, and things like that. So if I'm super off, I do apologize. If you're connected to this story and you know otherwise, this is my apology to you. Matthew's family, though, never turned their back on him, not even when he found himself in trouble with the law, like the time he was charged with grand larceny and served jail time in 2006. Matthew would return to jail two more times on parole violations, and for the most part, his family was always there for him, something he obviously took for granted. Matthew's past, though, would never compare to his future. 
And when Matthew's actions escalated, no one was surprised at all. What he did on July 13th could never be undone, excused, forgotten, or forgiven. Matthew would be arrested on the same day as a house on Turnpike Road in Adams, Massachusetts, about an hour and a half away after a multi-state manhunt. Matthew was suspected of murdering his family and torching any possible evidence that he potentially had left behind inside the house. Authorities would learn that as if nothing out of the ordinary went down that day, Matthew and Loretta had paid a visit to her mother with the baby popping in to say hi. They stopped at a few different pawn shops in Massachusetts and New Hampshire where Matthew inquired about selling valuables that belonged to his mother. And then it was later that day that the couple was taken into custody very close to Matthew's uncle's house where they were headed in New Hampshire along a desolate road. Back at the scene of the house fire, three bodies were discovered throughout the home, charred beyond recognition. The bodies were later confirmed to be Lisa, Dan, and Josh, and an autopsy later would show that each of them had been shot with a 12-gauge shotgun. A beautiful memorial went up in front of Lisa, Dan, and Josh's house, and staff from the local grocery store, who absolutely loved Lisa, who was always inside, were in absolute shock. They recall what great people they were. Dan was recalled as a great employee, and everybody just felt so horrible and saddened by the news of their deaths. When questioned about the house fire, Matthew quickly shifted the blame towards his girlfriend, Loretta, who he says shot his family, and then he in turn, in absolute shock, burned the house down to try to protect her, and that the only reason why they were found out of state was out of instinct. Matthew tearfully narrated the early morning hours of the fire to his defense team as they geared up to shift the blame over to Loretta for the murders, and the defense team was confident that the jury would buy this because they said that they had evidence of blood splatter that would confirm that she was the shooter. Matthew once again found himself in trouble with the law. At only 24 years old, he was now facing almost 100 years in prison for three counts of second-degree murder, arson, tampering with evidence, and petite larceny. Matthew's head remained in a downward position at his arraignment in a keen New Hampshire courtroom where he'd wave his right to extradition back to New York, showing zero emotion. Matthew kept to his story, though, explaining to his team and later a jury that he was inside of his room sleeping when he was startled awake by a 12-gauge shotgun blasting off round after round, killing Lisa and Dan inside of their bedroom, and then Josh, who was at times, actually more often than not, Matthew's only friend. Josh was shot in the living room alone. Matthew testified that when he heard the shots, he ran out of his room asking Loretta what the hell she was doing. And that's when she aimed the gun back at him, ordering Matthew back into their bedroom. She followed him in with the gun in her hand, breaking down in an emotional embrace once they were inside. And at that moment, Matthew said he just wanted to know why and how she could have ever done this to his family. And it was at that point where Loretta told him just to not worry about it, handing Matthew a can full of gas, and he said that's when he doused the house and he lit the match, knowing what he had to do to protect Loretta and his mother. He said he never wanted anyone to see his mother lying there with her wounds. The arson would be the only thing that Matthew would admit to, but the courts didn't have any reason to believe that anyone other than Matthew was responsible for the murders of his family and the arson. 
The problem was Matthew's original statement and confession to police was already on record. Matthew had fully admitted to being the shooter and to lighting the house fire that burned almost all the evidence. These would be statements that Matthew would try to backtrack on, saying that his confessions the night of his arrest came from a place in his heart knowing what he needed to do to protect Loretta and his baby. Matthew said that he knew that someone needed to be there for the baby, so he took the blame for everything and he shouldn't have because he was not guilty of those murders. In letters Matthew wrote from prison, one of them to Loretta reads, I wish I could take it all back, but it's too late for that now. All I could say is that I'm a big piece of shit loser and I should have never been born. Please try to find it in yourself to forgive me and tell baby Raymond I am sorry. So which is it, Matthew? Did you do it or did you not? In another letter to his brother, Danny, he writes, Danny, I'm going to start this letter by saying I'm sorry and that I really don't know or remember what happened. I try to sit and think about it, and I don't remember anything that happened that night and the reason I ran, because I don't want to be blamed for something. I don't know what happened. And all I could really say is, I'm sorry and that I love you. Please give dad this address, which was the address of the jail that he was being held in. Please try to find it in yourself to someday forgive me. I love you. Sorry. Love your brother, Matthew. Again, confessing kind of in not so many words because you don't apologize for something that you didn't do unless you did it, right? So during Matthew's trial, Loretta testified against him as the prosecution's star witness sticking to her story that she had absolutely nothing to do with the murders or the arson. While on the stand, Loretta claimed to witness sparks coming from a shotgun that Matthew was holding in his hand, and that's when she saw Josh lying lifeless on the living room floor. She said that's when Josh herself and the baby jumped into a Ford Mustang that was at the house but didn't belong to them and took off. Loretta said that she found herself in the car and now on the run in fear for her life, knowing Matthew's temper, and that she feared for the safety of her and her baby. Loretta recalls stopping at her mom's house around 5 a.m. and then a few pawn shops before they found themselves surrounded by police off a desolate road in New Hampshire near Matthew's uncle's house. Loretta led cops to the shotgun that Matthew dumped along a rural road and upon investigation, prosecutors were able to positively identify Matthew as a shooter saying that Loretta never put her hands on that gun. And she was never charged with anything, not the murders and not the arson. Another of the prosecution's witness was Washington County Sheriff's investigator, Bruce Hamilton, who on the day of the murders was the one that got the confession from Matthew. Bruce said that Matthew openly came out saying that he shot his mother. And at the time of the confession, this was a time when authorities had no idea that the victims had even been shot. Sheriff Hamilton did have his thoughts as to Loretta having something to do with the murders early on in the investigation, but like everyone else involved in the investigation, that quickly changed. Matthew acted alone that morning. The prosecution would also call on an inmate who was serving time with Matthew, 35-year-old Michael Thierman. He testified that Loretta was the real killer according to jailhouse conversations between he and Matthew, Matthew only admitting to the fires. During cross-examination, the defense asked Michael why he came forward with his story of Matthew confessing. Was he testifying in exchange for any sort of special treatment? 
And Michael was honest. He said that these were the conversations that he and Matthew had had, but that yes, in exchange for his testimony, he was looking for assistance with his status as a sex offender. So it wasn't really known what Michael knew. He could have very well been telling the truth and being honest about the conversations that the two guys have had, or he could have just been there for himself. The defense wanted Matthew's confession from the day of the murder with Sheriff Hamilton thrown out due to the fact that Matthew didn't have an attorney present when those statements were made. But Hamilton stated that when Matthew was asked if he wanted an attorney, Matthew's reply was, quote, yeah, probably, which was not the same as yes to this yes or no question that Matthew was being asked. And because of that, the interview had continued. A couple videos were played for the jury showing Matthew at two different pawn shops the day of the murders with Loretta. The two were seen flashing smiles as if they just hadn't murdered and burned down their family home. Matthew testified that the only reason why he had been smiling was because Loretta told him that he had to. Like, he keeps blaming her for everything, and now even down to his smile on his face. Apparently, this was typical behavior for Matthew, who rarely held accountability for anything that he had done in his life. The pawn shop worker had testified at the trial, saying that the couple looked, yeah, like they didn't have a care in the world, that when they were in there, they were acting super lovey-dovey, and it didn't seem like anything was going on, let alone that they had just massacred Matthew's family. Loretta appeared to be in super high spirits, so did Matthew. Loretta was not cowering down in fear of Matthew, and there was no sign that day that she was being held against her will which is what she was claiming. District Attorney Kevin Courtright asked for the maximum punishment to be bestowed on Matthew. He said that this was one of the most heinous cases ever committed in Washington County. He said that Matthew deserved a miserable existence in prison, from the killings to the fire to stealing from the dead. District Attorney Courtright had zero sympathy for Matthew, and either did anyone in the courtroom Closing arguments were heated, with the prosecution blaring that tensions between Lisa and Matthew had led him to kill. Matthew knew he was being pushed out of the family home, and he couldn't bear it. And Matthew's confessions to the sheriff on the day of the murders were his own words, taking full responsibility for killing Josh, Lisa, and Dan. So it was like, where's the argument? This is an open and shut case. A photo of Matthew and one of the pawn shops was displayed in full view. In it, the jury could see Matthew flashing a huge shit grin mid-transaction as he was selling his dead mother's jewelry. How could he steal from her after all that he had done? It was unbelievable, this lack of sympathy that Matthew had for not only his stepfather and his brother, but also for his mother. Lisa had done everything for him, and he killed her as if she was nothing. Sentencing was on June 20, 2017. Matthew sat facing up to 88 years in prison, with each of the charges against him to be served concurrently before he would ever be considered for parole. The courtroom was packed with people inside and outside, and from those who were there, they said that there was not one person present in support of Matthew. The exact motive in this case was never established, but it was pretty clear from all of the court testimony that it was the high tensions in the home that led Matthew to kill. He could not process the fact that his mother had been searching for apartments for him to move into with his girlfriend and his baby, 
which is crazy. It's like your mom is trying to help you. You fucking spoiled brat. What are you doing? You have this baby. You have a girlfriend. You have your own family. It's not like things are going good in the home on Turnpike Road. All of you guys are living this miserable existence. Let your mom help you become a better person. You don't kill her for wanting the best for you. Victim impact statements were emotional and full of hatred. People shouted at Matthew from across the courtroom through their tears. An enraged victim said that, Matthew Slocum, you go straight to hell. That's where you belong. Ray Kuhn, who was Lisa's brother, and Josh's mom, Pollyanna Harrington, gave tearful statements. Pollyanna said that she was just so worried about Josh's three-year-old son now having to grow up without his father being there to witness all of the milestones he would hit and all of his firsts. Others said that if it wasn't Dan, Lisa, and Josh that Matthew had killed that day, it would have been somebody else. Matthew didn't make a statement at his sentencing, and he appeared to cry just a little as the judge handed down the maximum sentence of 88 years to be served concurrently on three charges of second-degree murder and lesser charges of arson, tampering with physical evidence, and criminal possession of a weapon. The judge, like everyone else who packed the courtroom, had nothing but hatred for Matthew. And he even confessed that he actually double-checked the law while he was determining Matthew's sentence just to be sure that the death penalty was not an option. And when he realized that it wasn't, he settled in on that max sentence of 88 years. Matthew's fate was decided on just two hours of deliberation after a two-week trial. The prosecution said that they were not surprised by the sentence that was handed down at all. They knew that the evidence that they had presented solidified their case. Family members and friends wearing memorial t-shirts and everyone else in attendance that day cheered at the verdict, but cried knowing that their loved ones could not be brought back. Spats of ill will were shouted towards Matthew inside the courtroom, while others exited, just happy to know that Matthew would never be getting out of jail, and for that, they felt a little bit of relief. A notice of appeal was filed right away by Matthew's attorneys, claiming that his rights were violated and his confession had been obtained illegally. Witnesses inside the jail say that Matthew's completely unfazed when he sees photos of his family or when TV news stations are covering the case. They say that it's, you know, just like anything else, any other day, he remains completely emotionless. And Matthew's step-uncle says that that's just Matthew. He can't feel emotion. Thank you so much for downloading today's episode of Those Murder Girls Podcast. I'll see you back here next Friday with a brand new episode. Bye, guys.